Hey there, and welcome to the daily podcast where wisdom smacks us with kisses or love taps. I'm Michelle Spiva, a wisdom strengthening coach, your host, and practical priestess of wisdom. Join us daily to gain wisdom and mental strength as we tackle innovative thinking, address emotional and behavioral life traps, and yes, provide you with some practical how-tos to wrap it all up. So settle in or crank up the speed 2x, whatever gets your mental processes firing as we dive in. Stay tuned. Well, at least you made it um, over the finish line. Yeah, but I probably would have been able to win if I hadn't gotten turned around. The signage was horrible. I didn't know which way I was going. Hey, this is Michelle Spiva, your Practical Priestess of Wisdom, and I want to welcome you to today's podcast of Wisdom Smack. So join me on the flip as we get to talking about, is it failure or bad design? I'll see you on the flip. Have you ever been to a new place and nothing looked familiar? You found yourself running into doors, trying to figure out how to turn the water on or the shower in a new fancy hotel? Or maybe it depends on how effective and efficient you are at getting through a certain task, only to find out that it seems like every part of the task is there to make you fail. Now, if you can understand or empathize with any of the stuff that I've just asked you about, This is the podcast for you. And I'm going to tell you guys, I have been uh, finally going through uh, the standard, one of the standards in product design called uh, the Design of Everyday Things um, by uh, Don Norman. And it is really some food for thought, just how he breaks down how engineers tend to have a different knowledge set than their end users when it comes to designing things and making things to solve problems for people. And I like how he approaches the work. And the book, the version of the book that I have is a revised version um, around 2013-ish, 2015-ish or so, uh, because the original one was in the early um, 2000s and it was dated. And he even admits it was dated. But going through this book, and the reason why I'm going through it and really trying to go through it is because I'm always trying to work on my skill of what I do. And at current, I am in uh, full swing of some new training, uh, live trainings that I'm going to be doing. And I determined that I am going to design trainings, not for the stuff that I want to get to be able to teach and share with people as much as how I want people to be able to have as much success as they possibly can. And a lot of that can come through conscious design to help people the way they want to uh, interact with new knowledge, information, and the like. And so learning a quite a bit. And when I look back, I can think of a lot of different contests and obstacle courses and all these different things that I've experienced in the year and over the years, only to have this scenario face uh, confront me over and over again, where the signage is not clear or it's non-existent. 
the design makes certain assumptions that we can read minds of the people who constructed and made it because it makes sense to them. But outside of their world, uh, it makes no sense. It's counterintuitive. And I'll tell you, I have been studying. I don't don't laugh at me, but I find this fascinating. So in line with this whole product design uh, portion of my education that I'm giving myself, I have been studying uh, things that we take for granted or are hidden in plain sight. And this week I was studying uh, carousels, merry-go-rounds, and then I was also studying uh, running tracks. And these two different areas have something in common. They each go anti or counterclockwise. So the next time you watch a race or you look at a merry-go-round or even a carousel, notice that they go the opposite way of what a the, the hands on a on a watch or a clock would go. They go counter. And when I considered that, I was like, wow, that's different because I never knew, noticed it. And of course, there are all these different reasons. I mean, they even had explanations like your heart is usually heavier on the right side. So by running counterclockwise, it helps to give you balance. I was like horse pucky uh, in my mind while I was reading it. But then Occam's razor came to the forefront as usual. You know, that old um, theorem that the easiest, most straightforward explanation is usually the correct one. And there was a paper that was done that uh, had a weigh-in of a lot of thinkers. And they, they said, in the nutshell, we do it because it's less eye strain. We are used to reading in most Western societies from left to right. And when they started the Olympics back up in um, the 1800s, what they uh, learned was that naturally when they would have foot races, People, when running in a circle, people tended to run counterclockwise. And it helped the observers because to be able to see people running around a, a, a circle, your eyes would naturally be able to track them from left to right. And so that is one of the reasons why. And I took the time to tell you that because that's part of design. And before delving into um, Don Norman's book and starting to look for natural design that we take for granted because we're just so used to it, I, I was totally oblivious to this very important thing. And I wanted to talk with you guys about it and share it with you because there is great wisdom in it. Now, hierarchical, the best design is always found in nature. When people in the know who have taken the time to start training themselves like I'm just beginning to do, when they start training themselves on how it's best to make design, they first and foremost go to nature because nature has figured it out. And the reason why nature has figured it out is because if nature gets it wrong, you die. Point blank. If nature gets it wrong, you die out very quickly. You do not succeed in the goal of living very long. And so what you see before you that occurs in nature is all winners. All of these, these uh, occurrences, life forms, design, and, and, and systems are all the winners 
of a race that we didn't even know was being run. And so by starting at the natural point of where uh, we meet with nature, it gives us a running start, a jump start, if you will, to to design more. And yet and still, there are so many people who will want to design something and then flub it up. Now, when uh, going through the this book that I have just been like, wow, this is deep, <laughs> I was able to look at some of the pictures of the references that he made to, to uh, design. And now this one was not one that was in the book, but of course, like I said, I, I'm always trying to supplement to make sure I get as well-rounded as I possibly can. And there was a section in the book talking about the evolution of design for new technologies. And he talked about the typewriter, the telephone, and how a telephone from Alexander Graham Bell's time to a telephone that we have now looks completely different. And it got me to thinking about the horseless carriage and the whole idea of nature. And so the horseless carriage, if you will, uh, took uh, what best it could from what it had to work with, meaning a horse and then a buggy and a carriage, and then produced what it could. And so when you have Edison and, and the others coming and putting forth this, this horseless carriage, they did great design. And the reason they did great design is because when you're starting out with something that's totally new that people have not experienced before. And remember the other day when I talked about the difference of sustainable products and uh, de uh, destructive uh, technology and how you want to destroy, not to not replace. This is one of those instances. And so what you what we we had was a new design that had to be sold to the general population. And in order to do that, they had to make a small leap from a horse to a horseless carriage. And so if you look at some of the early, early models, they are set up to look just like a buggy. And instead of the horse, there is an engine. And even the way the carriage of the engine is made, it's sleek, it leans back a little bit, and it's not trying to look like a horse, but it gives you horsey feels, <laughs> you know, if that's the way of saying it. And I was just amazed when looking through the new filter of what I had learned by going through this book, The um, Design of Everyday Things. And uh, one of the Areas that I, I thoroughly enjoyed. I made notes, y'all. I made notes. This is my geekdom coming out. So one of the areas I made notes of is how when you're trying to get people to have a seamless integration with what you've created, you want to make it where it's intuitive. It's very user friendly. And so in, in the book, there is an example of um, a lot of different pennies. I believe it's like 16. No, it's not 16. It's uh, two, four. It's um, 15 pennies and in three rows. And each one of the faces of the penny is slightly different. And it asks you to pick out which one is the correct one. And it says that fewer than half of uh, American college students were able to do it and that it fared no better in other nations. That most people, when given the opportunity to tell you what the face of a small denomination penny looks like, they couldn't. Now, I'm going to tell y'all, I saved a few pennies, so I, my, my my eyes went directly to the right one because I know my pennies. 
because <laughs> I, I mean, don't don't at me about you know liking pennies. I don't I don't keep a lot of them anymore. But the ones you know, yeah, that I'm waiting on, you know, for them to to get good. Yeah, I've kept those. So I was able to pick it out, um, and it was quite enjoyable. I was like, who doesn't know what the face of a penny looks like? But I digress. But what he brought up was something very interesting that I had never considered. And he said that if you are going to make any kind of design that's truly useful, that people will truly be able to integrate with without requiring instructions, is you will make sure to understand that there are two different knowledges at play. There is what he calls knowledge in the world, and then there is knowledge in the head. Now, the the gist of it is, is knowledge in the world is that observer, observable information that you can get. He even goes on to say it's not necessarily knowledge as much as it's interpretation based on the signs, the symbols, and the environment that you're in. What you can glean from looking at what you're given and what's surrounding you. Pretending, say, for instance, you're in a land where no one speaks or no one speaks anything that you understand, but yet and still you have to matriculate and be able to survive in this world. And you don't even have signs or instructions. No one's pointing to do anything. So you've got to figure it out. And the person uh, in this world appreciates someone who understands how to design for when they need to glean knowledge from the world. And that means that the knowledge or the information is readily is, uh, is, is easy and readily available. It's easy to uh, glean what's going on. It means that uh, your interpretation of what's happening is not ambiguous. You get it right. And it also means that ease of use, when you first come up to it, you can figure it out. So you might be saying, oh, that world doesn't exist. Yes, it does. Every day. Think about when you get in your car and you get on an interstate, a road or whatever. Uh, Usually um, where you get on to some kind of thoroughfare, it's not going to have a lot of dis- instructions. Have you ever approached a road and before you turned onto it, there was this big sign of telling of, of uh, an instruction booklet on a, on a big billboard? No. And that is because by design, these, by the nature of things, I should say, you, there is a lot of nature in the world. I mean, no, <laughs> knowledge in the world that's required for you to be able to use certain things. And you don't have a lot of time to be trying to slow down and figure it out. You could cause an accident, hit someone, get hit. And so it has to be at a glance, you understand how to operate and use it. Whereas if you're looking at nature in the head, now nature in the head is going to be just like that. It is going to require some learning. You're going to have, and sometimes it can be really considerable. Uh, and if you have what they call well-learned information that you have uh, coming in, that's a prerequisite for how to use this information, it'll make it easier and almost automated. Now, nothing The thing is with this, nothing needs to be visual. You don't have to make it where the person can just walk up and start using it or engaging with it. When you're using something or working with something that's knowledge in the head, it does require that there that you have considerable uh, research and effort and manuals and learning that has to be done in order to interact with it. And so there are times for this. You cannot expect to walk up to a rocket panel and be able to start doing it, nor can you walk up to someone and say, I'm going to perform surgery on your head. All of these things would be 
what will be classified uh, knowledge in the head. Now, thank you so much for letting me go through that because I find it intriguing. I might be geeking out a little bit, but trust and know that there is much wisdom in this that we're going to talk about right about now. Okay. So when you're talking about this whole design and I hope that you can now see where the reason why his book is so powerful and it is a almost mandatory textbook in the area of design. And thus the reason why I got it when I was like, I I need to know how to do product design and his book came up is because he does what he preaches. He talks to you and presents things to you in a way so that you intuitively and instinctively get the understanding of the of the differences. He uses things like his uh, hate love with a GE refrigerator that he had um, that uh, the design on it was hideous. He talks about the doors that are even named after him for being so confusing uh, where people run into them. They don't know how to engage with them and the like. I have I've, I've actually told a story about when I was in uh, Germany. I said I was in Heidelberg, but I think I was uh, going in, out of Hamburg uh, for the airport. It was a beautiful airport. And I was tired and walking and walking because I thought every escalator was broken only to see a family walk up to the escalator, stop, stand before it, and and waited for a sensor to know it was there. And then the escalator started and it was an energy efficient escalator. They got on, they did what they needed to. And when they got off, the escalator stopped. I was like, oh my gosh. Now, in hindsight, I can see where the design is probably very intuitive, very like, duh, In that society, but coming from one where we were coddled, let me just be honest, and where they say push buttons, don't step here, don't, you know, we get all these signages. I was crippled. (laughs) I'm just messing up, crippled in my user interface experience with technology. And it got me, it broke me up from that. It broke me up from always trying to look for signage, look for where to be told, how to be pointed to something, and to open up my awareness to, you guessed it, grow my sense of knowledge in the world. And so with that, I had to go back and look and say, oh my gosh, how much failure are we really encountering And how much of it is due to bad design? Yeah. So now let's talk about if you're a victim of bad design. One of the byproducts of bad design and failure that I have um, experienced is a sense of uncertainty, of questioning myself, of being confused and trying to understand how did this happen? How did I get turned around? I thought this was going to be easy. It is not so easy. And... I I know I keep going back to that book, but he uh, uses an example in the book of something that he went through similarly with a piece of Lego. He uses the example of putting together the police person for Legos. And so he had a 1990s version and then he had a 2010s version of the Lego. And he applauded the original version of the Lego man because it had it, it took it had 15 pieces and it required no instructions. And he was able to put it together. All was well. All was right with rain. And he was happy and it looked great. But then they did an update. And now the police uh, figurine had 29 pieces and he gave up midway through 
before having to consult the instruction booklet on how to put it together. And he called it, you know, like it was. It was a failure because, you know, like now you can't put this thing together. And you couldn't glean what went where because of the knowledge um, in the world had been doused. And one of the things that I'm taking away from this as a wisdom smack is just like we've always said, wisdom and success leave clues. And in this book, I learned that when you have a great design, everything, including the parts of the of the inner of whatever it is you're interacting with, will give you clues on how to use it. He gave an example of a vegetable peeler. And how the vegetable peeler, just the way the handle is contoured, lets you know my hand goes here. The way the blades angle up or away lets you know, okay, this is not meant to be on the vegetable. Okay, this part is. And so just by the way everything about whatever it is you're using um, is in accord with what you're doing, it should be that seamless. But it's not easy. And therein lies the rub. And so as I was going through, oh, and by the way, that figurine uh, that he talked about for Lego, it was originally done in in 1988. And that was the one that didn't require any um, instructions. But the one in 2013, he said, really does. So being a victim of bad design is so insidious because sometimes you don't know that it's bad design. He talked about over and over again how people would not be able to get something to work the first couple of times and then they would say things like, oh, I'm sorry, I have to fiddle with this. I'm not very good at this. Only to figure out that it wasn't them, it was the way of the design. Uh, And as I looked at that, I looked at how many times, now here comes the wisdom smack, you guys, just so you'll know. I looked at how many times I had, quote unquote, designed something And it was bad design and I was setting myself up for failure. And things like making a process too convoluted and not going back and refining it enough so that when I needed to use it, it was not intuitive and it required my notes. Now, I know that sounds horrible and it's the truth, y'all. I have designed things to help myself that I need notes and instructions for. What kind of cuckoo-ness is that? But now that Professor Norman has helped me to understand that there are two different ways. You look at the knowledge of the world first, and that's how you design your pieces and the things so that you don't have to think about it. And then after you've done as much as you can with that portion, then you move to the part that needs to have some learning, some head learning and deep education of a subject. And just by even doing that, the way I'm approaching how I'm putting together uh, my new trainings, I'm getting a lot of success, a lot of good feedback, and it's not as hard. But you know what? What do they say? When you know better, you do better. And they also say, You do the best you can with the resources you have at that time. And so that is what I have been doing. But I'm just really kind of um, amazed at how wisdom just continues to keep coming with more and more lessons and leading us and guiding us. And so in my last few minutes about this bad design, the victims of bad design and all this kind of stuff, what I kind of want to look at is what to do when you are starting to realize that maybe it's a setup. Maybe you're not as bad at something as you think. Let me ask you, are there things that you have to do at work that because of how 
they are designed or the processes that have been put in place, you dread them. It has a high propensity for error or you just can't seem to get the hang of it. If you're nodding your head or saying yes, you are not alone. Now, that is an area that bad design is harmful. When you are working in a situation where your product that you, your work product that you're responsible for producing can make or break your livelihood, that's not cool at all. And so because of that, you need to have a one-up. So let me give you a few things that will help you to be able to kind of help Uh, uh, self-direct. So the first thing is any and every process that you identify that causes you to have to pick up some type of instructions or to go back and check someone else's examples or work, that is an area of a possibility uh, to improve the design. And so instead of making more notes on how to use something, look and see if you can change the shape of it or the placement of it in the order of which it's done or some other visual cue that will immediately trigger you to know, oh, this is what's done here. Remember the horseless carriage? When they first started producing cars, they tried to make them look like a buggy or a carriage from a horse and buggy as much as possible. And that is why they had a little steering wheel and they had uh, uh, just a few little gears so that it would mimic holding the reins of uh, how to manage a a, a team of horses. And even the front row and the back row were made to mimic a wagon so that people would have that knowledge of the world to help them. I want you to challenge yourself to understand uh, the processes that you go through that that are counterintuitive. And just because something appears to be right logically may not be the case. Remember how we don't even realize a lot of times that when runners run, they run against the grain of how a clock is done. They run counterclockwise, but it's so smooth that our eyes can track them and we're not aware of it and we get an enjoyment. So anywhere you can remove the obvious tension of needing to mentally interact with something and turn it into something that works with us. Remember, we learn from nature. Replace that which does not work with nature so that you can do things easily and find a process. Now, your process is probably going to look way different from someone else's, but... If it works for you, it works for you. Because when it comes down to it, everybody needs to keep their job. Everybody needs to know that they are not going to be on the chopping block for stumbling when everybody else has managed to figure out this convoluted bad design and then call you crazy, okay? So the next thing I want to say is this. I kind of want to ask this question and I wrote it down and I was like, ooh, I might be getting a little little something here, but I'm going to go on and say it. I want to ask, who's eating off of your failure? Why is it that so many systems have bad design? Who benefits from that? And when you look at who benefits from bad design, you will see that there are entire industries that benefit. Uh, The company is still around, but they changed their name and they changed their name such that uh, it got to be quite funny. They do. The system does a lot. Uh, it's great for if you're trying to run a business online. But it got to the point where the nickname for the company was called Confusion Soft. 
And it was not funny because it cost a lot of money each month to use the system. It did a lot, but it was very confusing. And just looking at mind maps of how the systems interacted with each other required a team of PhD rocket scientists. And it was frustrating. People wanted to pull their hair out, but there was really no other option until People did exactly what I'm talking about. They started learning how to design so that things become intuitive. They started designing, not like engineers, but like people who use things. Think about how bad it would be if you had to get on a road or a street and the you're, you're having to drive a vehicle going 50 miles an hour and you don't understand how to get on, how to approach, which way to go, which direction or any of that, that would be a nightmare. And yet still, that's what people do all the time. You turn around and and people are uh, expecting you to use things based on their knowledge in their small microcosm of how they do things. And it has come to a point where wisdom is saying, that you can eradicate a lot of the failure that has been set up for you. You can eradicate a lot of who's eating off of your failure because I'm going to tell you, there are times when I, I, I personally work with companies that their systems are so complex that it requires that you buy. Are you ready for this? You buy support because you're going to need their people who have been trained. All they do for that company is learn how to use the product so that they can then come and show you how to use it or nine times out of 10, just fix it for you until you have to call them again. And so when I started thinking about who profits, who eats off of your failure, it opened up this whole new understanding. And so this is the wisdom smack for today. If you are finding that there are areas in your life or in your livelihood that cause you to have to stop and get assistance and direction, or you find yourself saying, it shouldn't be this convoluted, it shouldn't be this difficult, complex, hard, or whatever, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to go back to nature. I want you to figure out how has nature done something similarly. And a lot of things that you do in your everyday might not be. Uh, obviously relatable to the natural order of nature. But if you give it a moment, you'll start to see that a lot of stuff really is. Once you identify how nature does something, whether it's by organizing, producing, being more effective, getting to a point, uh, using a network or, or a hive mind or whatever it is, then take what you can from that and replace certain parts of the process and system that won't get you in trouble uh, <laughs> that you can use and understand that uh, this is going to help you decrease the pro- uh, the potential and the probability of failure. And I'm going to tell you, everybody likes a winner. And when you do these types of things, things, you become innovative. And a lot of times you become a hero at your job. And so I hope you go through and look for those areas that you can benefit from, from fixing bad design. So guess what? Yep, my time is up. I thank you for yours. This has been Michelle Spiva, your Practical Priestess of Wisdom with another podcast of Wisdom Spag. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye.
And that's going to do it for today's podcast of Wisdom Smack with Michelle Spiva. If you like this podcast, please help us get the word out. Like, comment, subscribe, and even share. And if you really like it, please help us continue to get the word out by considering using this show's link for Amazon. So when you want to go to Amazon and you do all of your general shopping, uh, please use michellespiva.com forward slash AMZ. It's simple as that. It doesn't cost you anything extra. And this show might receive a little bit of commission that will go towards helping to further get these episodes out to you and to others. So thank you so much for listening. This has been Michelle Spiva with Wisdom Smack. Bye.